You know our slogan around here is better practice, better life. But we're taking this belief to the next level. And we've recently announced the creation of a new association. It's called the Best Practices Association. Our association celebrates the mindset that is better practice, better life. This mindset celebrates time, healthy living, personal growth, clinical excellence, and impacting the lives of your patients and your team through intentional leadership. In fact, we are the work-life balance experts in dentistry. The BPA will coach independent dental practices like yours to thrive by sharing best practices and operational habits, behaviors, systems, tools, and insight that lead to profitability and sustained growth, and you can still have a life. So if you're a dentist that wants to surround yourself with great thinkers, let us help you create your own version of Better Practice, Better Life. Go to actdental.com forward slash BPA or hit the link in the show notes. Yo, 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 yo. Hey guys, welcome back to another amazing edition of the Best Practices Show podcast. I'm loving this so much. As a dentist, you ever thought, man, there's a fork in the road ahead. I got to pick one of these paths that's best suited for my future. Well, today we bring on one of my favorite teachers of all time, Dr. Jim McKee, and he explains there's one path you might want to consider, the restorative diagnostic practice for your future and why it's a good path to pick. You have to listen to this episode. It's a great one. Hope you guys enjoy it and we'll see you soon. Hey guys, welcome back to the Best Practices Show podcast. You ever thought to yourself, where in the world am I going with my dental practice? I need some direction. Are there some direction some direction guideposts out there? What kind of practice would I ever want to create in the future? Well, today I've got one of my favorite teachers of all time. This guy is absolutely brilliant, Dr. Jim McKee. And he's going to point out an opportunity that exists for you as a dentist. It's the restorative diagnostic practice with Dr. Jim McKee. Jim, thanks for being back, brother. I appreciate you. Carl, always great to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's just a blast. Yeah. So for you guys listening, you have to know this. Jim took care of me when I was a young speaker, had no money. I had hair. I had nice ties. You know the deal. So... And Jim's always been there for me to put me on the rails and point out the direction a lot of us need to go. And today we're going to do just that. And you're going to see his insights are brilliant. So he's a busy man. He teaches at Spear. He's involved in a lot of different things. Actually, he's leaving tomorrow for Spear Education. And I'm just grateful that you would carve out some time to share this concept with us. I, I do want to do this, Jim. I want people to know a little bit about your background so that they sure. know who they're listening to instead of sure. just jumping into the concept. Because we have a lot of young listeners now. So who's Dr. Sure. Jim McKee? What do you do? Uh, I graduated from University of Illinois Dental School not knowing what I was going to do. And I ended up buying a small neighborhood practice in a suburban area of Chicago. It was from a woman who practiced two days a week. And she had an associate who was another female who practiced two days a week. 
The owner wanted to spend more time with her three children and the associate wanted to start a family. So the associate left and I was left with two day a week practice. First day in practice, I did an amalgam buildup at eight o'clock in the morning and I did an endo on number 14 at four o'clock in the afternoon. And those are only two patients I saw all day. So I'm said, I'm proud to say that the amalgam buildup patient is still the patient in the practice. The endo <laughs> patient is why well, don't do endo. But um, it was a slow practice. I mean, it was a very, it was basically a hobby practice for the owner. Her husband was an osteopath. We shared the office. So it wasn't a very busy practice at all. I started to see patients that I didn't really understand what was going on. Mostly patients who had worn teeth or clicking joints. But at that point, I told them what everyone else said. Don't chew gum. Made them a soft night guard. That didn't work. So we just kind of forgot about it next time they moved in and made sure they didn't have any bleeding gums or decay. Because <laughs> that was basically our definition of dental disease, was either periodontal disease or caries. So that went on a few more years. And I remember doing a bridge, an upper anterior bridge. Patient came back in a year later, and the lower anterior teeth were completely worn down. It was an envelopal function problem, an interior guidance problem that I didn't really understand at that time. And as a result, I started to become more tentative presenting treatment plans, especially around anterior teeth, because I wasn't quite sure how to work out the occlusion. About a year later, I got a flyer. Pete Dawson was doing a course in Chicago. I'd actually heard Pete two years before and walked out after 20 minutes thinking this old guy needs to retire. He doesn't really know what's going on. Anyway, I went back to the occlusion course, and it was really the first time that occlusion made sense to me. And I've been really fortunate. I've had some great mentors over the year. A year later, I met Mark Piper at a Dawson course, and it was the first time joints made sense to me. So I was lucky. I kind of got in occlusion at the perfect time. I got into joints at the ground floor. Imaging MRIs had only been out a year. So really, I started imaging as early as anyone, probably. So I've imaged for a long time. I've seen a lot of occlusal problems for a long time. And really, it's been a continual stream of new patients to the office, not only from patients, but from dentists. And honestly, that's been really the, the neater part of the practice. That's what we're going to talk about in the, the fee-for-service restorative diagnostic practice, because when you have professional colleagues sending you patients, your patients are coming in at a different level. You know, having, having done traditional neighborhood dentistry for the first five, six, seven years of my career, I certainly know the difference. Right. Patients come in more ready to say yes. Finances aren't as much of an issue. Not that they're still not an issue, but they're a little more open to the discussion than the first thing out of their mouth is, does insurance cover this? Right. So basically, my practice started to change. I went from a neighborhood practice to where... I started a study club. I started to talk to dentists in the community and generally referral-based practice started. Totally, I didn't even know, honestly, that's what I was doing, really. I was just trying to do the best I could with patients who came into the practice, but I started more people started sending patients because they didn't know what to do with them either. So from there, I started teaching and uh, Whit Wilkerson had asked me to come down to help out with some Dawson courses. Um, Chris Sager had asked me to come down to teach at the Panky Institute. And then I started doing some courses that I had put together. And 
just kind of went from there. So that's kind of how it all started. Never thought the dentistry would take the pathway that it's taken for me. I've loved every minute of it. It's been a fabulous profession. But, you know, kind of what we were talking about before we started today, is fee-for-service practice still viable? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so you're prompting my question that I was going to ask you. Before we hit the go button, you know, it's kind of like this path. And there's three forks in the road. Um, But before we get to the forks, you know, you and I, you're at Spear, we're, we're doing our work here as coaches. We see the same thing. Sure. Pra- practices are too busy. There are well-meaning dentists. And if you're listening to this podcast, you might fit that category where you have a practice. You're like, I want to do the right thing, but it's crazy busy. And you, you know, you're at a point where you have to make a decision. And I want you to explain the three forks in the road because there's three options typically for most dentists that you meet, you know? For, for most dentists who are going to be in a practice, you're generally going to fall into one of three pools. First is going to be a practice that's in a network practice. And with that practice, it might be a common practice for people getting out of school, trying to pay down some bills, trying to develop some hand speed. In those practice, there's this contracted fee schedule between the insurance company and the practice. So a third party sets the fee. And, you know, it took me a while to figure this out. But what I realized is when there's a ceiling on your fee, there's also a ceiling on your time that you can spend. Now, if you don't have a lot of problems and maybe you just need a cleaning, maybe that's a practice that's okay. Problem is, it seems today that The nature of complex problems has shifted from caries, which we used to see 20, 30, 40 years ago. Today, we see more orthodontics. We see more tooth wear. We see more airway issues. And those tend to be more complex than just drilling out decayed tooth structure and filling it with material. So the difficulty is the patients today, especially the younger patients, are having a hard time getting diagnosed because in the in-network practice, it doesn't really cater to that need. Now, the advantage of the in-network practice is you've got an unending number of new patients. I mean, it's awesome. You got one new patient after the next, but the problem is you don't have necessarily enough time to work them up. You don't necessarily have enough time to develop a treatment plan and talk to them about it. And a lot of times there's a mentality that I'm only going to do when insurance is going to cover. Right. And that's okay because that's what they've been told. So for that reason, I kind of think it's the most challenging practice style out there today. And the difficulty is that's where a lot of young dentists end up getting out of school because they're paid well. And it allows them to pay down some significant debt that they have. Problem is, you know, you kind of get got to get through those tough years till you go out and do something else. And you hope that you can make it through that. Yeah. So let's say you're out four or five, six years now and you start to say, you know what? I've done the in-network thing. Let me look for a different option that's maybe an out-of-network thing or a fee-for-service practice. 
And then from there, you're going to find two types of practices. I think you're going to find traditional fee-for-service practice, kind of the neighborhood the practice that I described that I had been starting. Doctor sets the fee, but in reality, what I did when I had to set a crown fee back when I was starting the practice is I'd call a friend of mine and say, hey, what do you charge for a crown? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the answer the friend gave was what usual and customary was. Right. Maybe a little bit more, but not a lot more because you didn't want to have the conversation of why the insurance wasn't going to cover the fee. Right. So really, even though in a fee-for-service practice, the traditional style of it, the dentist sets the fee. My contention is that honestly, the dentist really doesn't set the fee. There's no analysis into the amount of time that's spent or the expense incurred to provide that procedure. It's simply what the insurance company allows for it. So really, there's an invisible ceiling on your fee, which means there's an invisible ceiling on your time, which is difficult because now you don't have a constant flow of new patients in this practice. You got to bring new patients in. And in order to bring them in, you need a specific skill set. Right. If this is more of a generalized practice that just drills and fills teeth, these are the practices that are getting squeezed today because there's nothing to bring new patients into the office. And therefore, if a patient doesn't perceive a problem, They're going to go in network because why would they pay more if they didn't have to? For sure. So that becomes the problem, I think, with this practice style. The other option you're going to look at is a fee-for-service practice that maybe has a restorative or diagnostic emphasis to it. And that's part of the, I think that's going to be the thriving fee-for-service practice. In that practice, which is eventually the practice developed in our practice, unbeknownst to me, but that's really what it ended up being, we were able to set the fee and we did set it on a time and material structure. So we always talk about profitability in dentistry. And, you know, it's interesting. Most of the time when we talk about becoming more profitable, we're always talking about how to cut down on expense to increase the profit level. The reality is I think a lot of the times we have to look at the other end of the equation. Right. I think many times we need to raise the revenue to be paid a little bit more appropriately for our services, which are then going to increase the profitability that we're able to do with those types of services. So with this, there's going to be a higher cost to the patient. But here's the here's the real key to the discussion. This practice absolutely demands a, a specific skill set. Whether it's diagnosing joints, right. whether it's doing restorative dentistry, whether it's being an aesthetic, an aesthetic trained dentist, no matter what it is, you have to have a specific skill set that brings people to you. For me, the joints was the easiest one. I was doing the occlusion anyway, and the joints was a necessary add-on to that. But in reality, no one else was doing it. So all of a sudden now, phone call after phone call after phone call. And then when you call the referring dentist back, they say, oh, no, you do the work. I I don't want to touch it with the bad joints. Right. So all of a sudden, this became not only a practice that now had a diagnosis component to it that was profitable, but it also had a restorative component that was profitable as well. And it kind of fed off each other. So... 
this type of practice, generally your new patients come from referrals and everyone talks about, I want to get new patients referred to my practice. And that discussion is always talked about that I want patients to refer other patients to the practice. Right. My advice, if you can develop a practice where other dentists refer you patients, that is the most sustaining practice you will have because it is not uncommon for a dentist to refer two to three me, two to three patients a day to me sometimes, but depending upon who they see, that's not going to happen from a, from a patient. Right. And those dental practice, those dental referred patients are already pre-screened. So we basically know what we're coming in for. Those are patients that are more in my wheelhouse. It's more specifically designed for the skill set that we've been able to develop. And for that reason, I honestly think that's the most secure type of practice that's out there today. It insulates us from third party issues. It provides a constant stream of new patients. It allows you to be profitable. It allows you to have time off to take continuing education to continue to build your skill set. It allows you to pay your staff more than they can get paid anywhere else in the community, which is right. going to promote long-term retention, decrease stress in the office. So for me, that's the practice style. The problem is figuring out what you want your skill set to be. Right. We could do an entire hour of the benefits yeah. of picking a direction like that yeah. and going all in. You know, you look at the team thing. We all want to pay our team members well. And you need the resources to be able to do that. When you're talking about the practice that you're creating, you're removing a lot of ceilings. You also need time to do that. Now, I want to go back to this. It not only insulates you from, you know, the insurance conversation, but from recessions. You know, the people always, you know, recessions are going to happen. It's part of the economy going up and down. But when you've got a steady stream of, you know, it's kind of like dollar cost averaging or just building annuities that mature constantly over time, you've got patients coming in saying, hey, it's time for me to do this. I got to get this done, right? Absolutely. And that discussion pairs back then to what skill set you're going to choose. Right. Again, from my perspective, it was kind of dumb luck that I went the occlusion joint treatment planning pathway because there are some skill sets that may be more sensitive to economic downturns. Sometimes I remember back when the economy went south over the past 20 years, the few times it did, a lot of the aesthetic dentists sometimes took a little bit of a pounding because that was a discretionary income-based uh, need that the patient was filling. Um, I was lucky because if patients had growth problems, if patients had joint problems, if patients needed treatment planning issues worked out, those tended to not to be as dependent upon the economy as some of the more discretionary items might be. But you're right. And I mean, and what it, here's the other thing. You know, honestly, I never had to really devote any resources to marketing. I took all my marketing resources and put it right into CE so I could go back and build skill sets. That was really, and I think, I think the practice of the future is going to be a practice with multiple practitioners 
who can share specific skill sets. If you could develop a practice where you had three or four really good dentists that practiced together and each emphasized a certain area, maybe did one did joints and occlusion, one did airway, one did aesthetics, one did however you wanted to set structure it. You can make that multi, you can make that a specialty practice as well. The problem is again, you have to keep a lot of people happy in that marriage. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I've been talking to a dentist in the Chicagoland area about this concept of really developing a multi-specialty practice for high-end dentistry. Mm-hmm. I think I think patients need it. You could imagine if you had one orthodontist, one periodontist, one oral surgeon, one restorative dentist, one joint dentist, one airway dentist, all under one roof who could collaborate, that would be a rock in practice. Yeah. Rock in practice. Yeah. And that's a, that's a podcast. You know, I, I want the listeners to hear this. Like you don't have to have multiple doctors to have an amazing practice. I think Jim, the point that you're making is like, you got to get really good at something for people to reach into their pockets and pay beyond what insurance. And they also have to understand, I want to, I want to have you explain this, but a big part of it. Now I live in Milwaukee. It's amazing the number of concierge MDs that are popping up here where people are like, I'm just tired. I can't get anybody to call me back. I can't get a straight answer. People are willing to pay a dollar amount to a very small practice or somebody who's really good at what they do to help them with the problems that they have. So if you ever think you're going to be out of business, that is absolutely not true. You got to get good at something. And then I want you to talk about this. In order for you to cross that bridge in which people reach into their pockets and pay for something, they have to, patients have to understand how to move from pool two to pool three, right? They, patients have to understand right. that, right? Right. Well, the practice that we're talking about, honestly, I think gives you the best chance for a low overhead because... A lot of the dentists that we're talking to today, I'm sure you're hearing the same thing, are saying they're too busy, they're too busy, they're too busy, they're too busy. Yeah. And they're not profitable, but because they're having to write off fees because they're in network. For sure. So, I mean, are you too busy, really? You're, you're busy, but it's a case of working really hard for not maybe getting the financial reimbursement that you should be getting for working at that level. If you can develop this diagnostic practice, basically what you could do this having one front desk, two assistants, and a hygienist. You could probably have a four person office if you were really clean about it. Five maybe if you wanted to have a lab tech and another help at the front desk. Right. So, I mean, you don't have to have a big practice to do this. And those that practice model, now, that can be kind of modular where you could add on to that with another doctor if you want. But I got to be real clear, you don't have to do it. You could very easily make that a single, single doctor practice. And I think have a very sustaining practice if you were able to, to build that skill set and become more of a concierge type practice or a boutique type practice. I mean, it's interesting. The response you're seeing in medicine is a direct response to what happens when you don't have great insurance coverage. 
Right. Or great. Let me rephrase that. When you don't have great service from an insurance coverage or insurance based relationship. Right. Right. You know what would be fun? I'm going to pick you up in my car one day and we're going to go to a couple practices of some people I know. And I want you to pull some charts. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why I'm saying this. The goal of this podcast is to help you. So if you're listening to this, please take this as help. Pete Dawson used to always say, there's a practice within your practice. There might be two practices within your practice. And so if you're a dentist wondering, well, there's no dentistry out there. There's a mountain of dentistry in all of those charts. Thoughts on that one, Jim? It's how I changed my practice. It really is how I changed my practice. I would look at the hygiene schedule pretty much every day when we'd be in the morning meeting and I would look down the list of patients and I'd start thinking about their mouths. And at that time I was seeing things differently because I had more education. So I knew that there were patients coming in with problems that I had, that they had, that I wasn't able to diagnose at that time simply because my knowledge base hadn't evolved yet. So what I would do is I would pick one of those generally in the morning. And I would always pick the one who I had the highest level of trust with, the easiest relationship, the easiest one to talk to. And I would say, you know, we've been keeping an eye on some things. What would you think about coming back and taking a closer look at these things? And... When I first started, I got maybe 50% of the people to say yes. Then I got a little more comfortable with it, and I probably got 75% of the people to say yes in maybe a year. And then after two years, pretty much everyone said yes. Because by that time, I had been able to develop my skill set in terms of explaining the issues. I had some successful treatments, so I was much more confident talking to patients. But... I did that for years in the practice, Kurt. And all of a sudden, like you said, someone who had been coming to me for years, their kids graduated college. They said, okay, I'm ready to do these. I'm ready to do the upper crowns. And those patients just filtered through the practice then. Yeah. But there's definitely a practice within a practice. And that's really how you build this practice. Your new patients could be the, di- the restorative practice, the diagnostic ones, could be either new patients or patients you pull out of your own hygiene department. Right. That's the beauty of this practice model. You've already got the patients there. You just need to bring them through in a different way so they're able to understand, A, the problem, so B, your solution makes sense. Okay. Biggest mistake I made is I, I provided solutions to patients who didn't understand they had a problem. Right. Okay. You got to go back to the word diagnostic because that's one word we haven't opened up yet. Bill Robbins was here two weeks ago with Jim on. And I posed this question during GDE. How important is the new patient experience in the diagnostic process? And they both like said, in sync, it's everything. So go back to the diagnostic. So help us understand the word and why it's so important to the restorative diagnostic practice. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. We have, there was an old saying, examination before diagnosis, diagnosis before treatment planning. What we tend to do is jump right to treatment planning because we're looking to help people. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the exam gets cheated and the diagnostics get cheated. 
Now, if all you're doing is filling teeth, you can probably get away with that. Problem is we're doing more today than just filling teeth. So therefore, the exam really has to be at a different level than it's been before. We're not just looking to see if there's buckle carries on the first lower first molar. We're looking at wear patterns. We're looking at joints. We're looking at gum tissue. We're looking at aesthetics. We're looking at airway. We're looking at facial development, all that stuff. And then from there, what we have come to realize is that many of the patients that are coming to our practice have poorly developed mandibles and poorly developed maxillas. So a lot of times as restorative dentists, we have a foundation that hasn't developed very well. And then all of a sudden we're supposed to take not great parts and create this masterpiece out of it where the teeth are exactly in the right place and they look beautiful. That'd be great unless you have something coming in with a retronathic mandible or a retronathic maxilla or a narrow nasal passage and they can't breathe. Those are all different cases then. So that's why today I really think the complexity of dentistry has changed. And that's why I think today you can't get away from diagnosing because most of the time we're not just putting fillings in teeth anymore. Yeah. That's why the diagnosis part becomes critical because without that, then your treatment plan, you don't know where to go with it. Right. I want you to tell our listeners where you're going tomorrow and what you're going to teach. What's the name of the course you're going to teach? And I have a question after you tell everybody. Uh, I'm going to spare education and I teach the advanced occlusion workshop. It's a three-day workshop that's a combination of hands-on, case planning, case discussion, treatment planning. Uh, it's an awesome three days. Yeah. Basically, the occlusion workshop, workshop is set up to treat patients that have normal joints. This is a workshop that talks to you about how to treat patients that don't have normal joints. Yeah. We'll talk about when to image. We'll talk about how to image, what to learn from imaging, how to apply that to your treatment plan. We'll talk about treatment planning, not only the mandible, but the maxilla as well. So we're going to talk about how to treatment plan airway cases predictably, as well as joint cases. My opinion today, it's interesting. I hear so many patients talk, or dentists talk about airway. Yeah. You, you can't treat airway today without knowing joints. Yeah. You can't. Well, so that's why I think this information has to get out to the real world. So it's a three-day workshop. Um, it's an awesome workshop. Um, it, it, it'll cover cases you just see every day in your practice. Yeah. And this, you already answered part of my question, but I'm going to be a listener here. That's listening on the drive to work. Come on, Jim, advanced occlusion. Why do I need occlusion at this point in my career? You know, type of a thing. You hear these questions all the time. I hear them too. I'm like, now this also, let me couple that with the title of this podcast. This is where you truly can create that practice that's in pool number three. Speak to that. Right. Well, really, what occlusion does brings people into your practice is really what it does because right. we tend to think of occlusion as how the teeth fit. Let me redefine occlusion. Occlusion is how the lower jaw fits to the upper jaw. There's three areas of articulation. One are the teeth. 
The other two are the joints. And most of the time, if the teeth don't fit, it's generally because the joints don't fit. So from occlusion, we need to understand how the teeth fit. But most of the time, if the teeth don't fit the way they should, the answer typically lies at the joint level. That's why today, again, you can't make an airway appliance pulling someone forward with a retronathic mandible if you've got skinny condyles and have eroded bone that you're pulling them forward against a joint socket that's been flattened from years of wear. That's why I say it's a whole different discussion today than it used to be even 10, 15 years ago. You know, the ability to see MRI, to see soft tissue and CT scan to see hard tissue, it takes all the guesswork out of it, which honestly, you know what it does? It makes it fun. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the cases aren't, the cases don't, the cases that used to make me nervous treatment planning, they're not there anymore because generally we understand what's happening at the back end of the system as well as the front end of the system. And we pretty much can give people answers, but not only can we give them answers, we can frame their expectations on a more realistic perspective. I used to promise the moon sometimes because I thought the only problem was muscle. And if I made a really good splint, they were going to get better. That's true if it's just a muscle problem. The reality is there's more patients with structure altered joints than we think. So that's why if you're going to build a restorative diagnostic practice, my advice is to do it through the, the occlusion joint or the occlusion TMJ world because the need is so great and there's no one out there answering the need. Amen. Amen. I want you to talk about your study club. Before we do, give us some final thoughts. If I'm a dentist listening and I have this, I've got, I'm at this fork in the road where I can choose one of these three pools. You know, you have to be at a point in your career, you're ready to, to make a choice. And for every dentist that comes at different points in their, in their career. I was fortunate to go into a small practice early, but I probably made my choice four, five, six years into it. When I talk to most young dentists, that's about the age, I think, where dentists start to realize that I want to figure out where I want to spend my time in this profession. My advice is find something you like and go after it. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what it is, but find something you like and become an expert at it. You're going to enjoy dentistry more. You'll attract people who have that need. If you really want to build this type of practice, you got to commit to training your staff. That'll be one of our future podcasts, creating great staffs, because otherwise it's too hard just for the dentist to pull the rope all by him or herself. So that becomes part of it as well. But I will tell you, dentistry today, I think fever service is alive and well. Yeah, You have to be smart about it. And you have to choose something where there's a need and where patients understand the need and are willing to pay for the need, but it's out there. Yep. So that would be my closing thoughts. So well said. Now, I want you to tell people about your study club. It's an amazing opportunity. 
um, with some incredible people. So what is it called? What do you do? How much do you get together? Tell us about it. Chicago Study Club was a study club that I started two years ago with Kurt Ringhofer, Seth Atkins, and Drew McDonald. Kurt's a restorative dentist who's about 20 minutes from me in Chicago. Seth is south of Dallas, whiz at digital dentistry, and Drew McDonald is an orthodontist who really understands the connection between structural alterations at the joint level and growing patients. Um, all of us have lectured together in different places. Um, it's, it's a two-day study club that meets twice a year. We've limited to people that we know. It's by invitation only, so we don't open it to everyone. So if you would like more information, just contact uh, Kurt, and he'll get your information to me. Um, but it's a great, great two-day program that concentrates on occlusion and joints on day one. And then we usually do some type of restorative orthodontic, joint-based orthodontic oral surgery program on day two. Sometimes we'll bring speakers in, sometimes we'll do it ourselves. And really the, the, the nice thing about this is the people in the group drive the curriculum. Study club learning for me has always been my most effective way of learning and I think teaching um small groups who learn who have a like-minded thought process i think learn quicker i get through more material in study clubs than i'll ever do in a lecture because i can present the material and it's absorbed quicker so it's really it's a lot of material you're going to get for two days once in the spring once in the fall always in chicago to make it easy to get to it's almost a direct flight for everyone we're in the western suburbs halfway between o'hare and midway if you want more information um, go ahead and give Kirk my inf your information and he'll get it to me. Yeah. So if you're looking for an opportunity to get involved, now you got to be invited by Jim. I will put the information in the show notes. This is how it works here. We love this profession. We're going to keep bringing it with great leaders. And if you're not taking notes, we're taking notes for you. Flip up to the notes. Wherever you're consuming this podcast, you're going to see a link on how you can get connected with Jim. You also see a link to the course he teaches at Spear Education. And uh, I'm going to encourage you just to get involved. Jim, as always, I'm going to hold you to the next podcast, which is how do we create a great team around all of this? Sure. And you're going to walk us through that. Sound good? Sounds great. It's called Voluntolding. I love it. Didn't even ask you. I just told you. So uh, <laughs> it's good stuff, man. So stick around, my friend, while we say goodbye to everybody else. But thank you guys for listening to The Best Practices Show. We're going to keep bringing it. So you keep showing up and keep sharing this with your friends. If you enjoyed today, do us a favor, hit the share button, share this with your friends. Keep sending us suggestions that you guys want to hear from not only all of our guests, but also from Jim. I'm going to have him back again and again and again. Spec, uh, check out Spear Education, his study club. And until we see you guys next time or you hear from us next time, keep watching or keep listening to the best practices show. You guys enjoy your day. So there you have it. Another great episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hey, and thank you for showing up. I just want to thank you for being here and sharing the good word with your friends. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, could you do me a favor? Could you go to wherever you consume the podcast and just give us a four or five star review? Here's what that does. It allows us to find other great people like you. I love this profession so much. I'm going to spend the rest of my professional life finding great information 
so that you can consume it and your friends can consume it so that you can create a better practice and a better life. So keep spreading the word and we will see you guys soon. Have a great day, everybody.